Lots of things are better together. Hockey, food, golf. How about a cold one on the patio during a nice spring day? But if you really want to take things to the next level, drink some Labatt Blue Lights with your friends and live life to the power of we. Always enjoy responsibly. Beer, Labatt USA, Buffalo, New York. Thanks so much for checking us out here on the GM Shuffle. Hope everybody is staying safe and doing their best to manage these crazy times. We got lots coming up today in the entertainment file. A great new show on Amazon Prime that no one knows about. Mike will tell you all about that. The Last Dance wraps up. Can't talk betting enough, right? How about the odds right now for Coach of the Year favorites and also this wild story involving DeAndre Baker? But we begin with the Rooney Rule. And how about this? We know it's been an issue for a while now when it comes to the National Football League in terms of managing the fact there's not nearly enough minorities in positions of power. So there was a concept and an idea being floated out there about possibly adding compensatory draft compensation to teams that would be weighted in terms of the job's prominence. Uh, this was a previous report from Jim Trotter of NFL.com, and now CBS Sports NFL insider Jonathan Jones has confirmed the NFL has decided to table those conversations. But Think about this, Mike. The Rooney Rule, established in 2003, is going to see some changes as owners have approved the proposal that removes restrictions on assistant coaches interviewing for coordinator roles. Before we get into how to fix this issue, how about that concept of literally impacting a draft if you had a minority as a GM? To me, that's crazy. Yeah, I, I mean, we've known in any business circle, it just tells you, you know, really how out of touch the NFL office is incentives don't work and you're missing the core of the problem you know you're picking the top of the tree we got to get down to the root of the problem right we got to get down to the essence of of what's going on and they have no idea fans at home have no idea about how people become head coaches in the NFL it is a an elected position it's not a selected position and we keep pretending it's selected based on merit, based on he's the best man for the job. Okay, let's just take this an example. And I'm not passing judgment here at all. But Thomas McGahee, the special teams coach for the New York football giants, is an African-American coach. And he's outstanding. He's one of the best special teams coaches in the league, right? He didn't even get a sniff as the New York Giants head coach. Joe Judge, who basically started coaching – you know, McGahee was was coaching and, and Judge was still in high school. Judge gets this job, and I'm not begrudging Joe at all. Joe was in line to get the Mississippi State job. That's where he was headed, you know, and then he got the Giants job. But my point here is this. Joe was electable. Joe's coming from the Patriots. He's coming from a winning tradition. He's coming from this. John Mara's not going to stand in front of the media and say, well, you know, after two hard years, I've just promoted Thomas McGahee to my new head coach, whether you like it or not. You know, he's got to sell it. He's got to be, you've got to be electable. And, and that's where the NFL has no understanding about this whole thing. No understanding at all is, A, it's an electable position. And B, it's really about leadership. It's really about leadership. And Dell, we did that Dell seminar, and we could do a whole seminar on what the NFL could do to create a better minority hiring practice, females, minority coaches, whatever. I mean, it's a back-end loaded system that they're trying to deal with, and, and they don't really have any understanding of it at all. 
Yeah, Tom Pellicero, the NFL Network reported on Monday, teams are now required to interview at least two external minority candidates for head coaching jobs and at least one minority candidate for any coordinator position. And along with those changes, clubs must interview one external minority candidate for senior football operations and GM jobs. League and team office positions are also required to include minority and or female applicants for senior level positions. But as to what you're alluding to, Mike, it's one thing to say, hey, listen, you got to interview this person. But of course, those can be just, you know, token interviews. You, you can still have your eyes to somebody else say, oh, okay, we just have to check this box and so the league doesn't get mad at us. Okay, we'll just bring in this minority and go from there. That, that's not going to solve the issue. Currently, there are four non-white head coaches and two non-white general managers of the NFL. This is a league in which two-thirds of the players are African-American. Of the last 20 head coaching hires, three have been filled by a minority head coach. It gets one thing to say, okay, the numbers are off a little bit, but those numbers are off drastically from what it should be in terms of what player representation is. No doubt. And the problem is, is it's not just getting minority coaches hired. It's making them successful. That's an internal problem through the NFL is how do we make coaches? So like at GE, GE has the Croton Center for Leadership that GE developed, that they send their employees to this leadership center to train them to become better so they can move up through GE, right? Why doesn't the NFL, with all the money they have, with all the resources at their, at their disposal, why don't they have someplace out of New York City and, and somewhere a leadership center that they can train ex-players, female coaches, and train them on absolutely the essentials of leadership, right? Here's what you have to do. When Jim Harbaugh came in to the Raiders and he stopped playing, Jim Harbaugh knew a lot about football. He just didn't understand how to work Excel, how to work PowerPoints, how to organize his day. Like, who's helping ex-players do that? He didn't understand how to build a culture. He didn't understand any of that, you know? And so we're asking the players, yeah, they know something about the sport and they know the scheme, but they don't understand how to lead. And we missed this whole thing completely. In fact, I, I, I tried to have this conversation with Troy Vincent at the University of Pennsylvania this year, and I told him about, you know, I think you should buy Gridiron Genius for coaches to read, you know, but football coaches don't read my book. I mean, I get more basketball coaches that Zoom me every day than football coaches. The league office probably doesn't even know about the book. The book's about how to become a better head coach. And maybe I don't know a fucking thing about it, but at least there's something documented on paper. If Bill Polian would have wrote the book, they would have been giving the book out. You know, they would have been giving the book to everybody because they, they don't like me, so I'm not going to get any publicity on the book. But the reality of it is, is, is who's training people? Who's training these coaches to become great coaches? That's what we want. We want minority coaches to be successful. We want seven Mike Tomlins. You know, we want coaches that can come in the league and impact and lead men and show, you know, the youth of America what, what it takes to be a great leader. You know, at the Naval Academy, at the Air Force or at the Army, they don't sit there and say, we're going to incentivize to promote. We're going to teach leadership. Like, that's what we have to do. We got to go teach leadership. And no one understands how screwed up the system is. I mean, think about this, AD. If you were applying for a job, you know, at, at an NFL team, right? What, what do they naturally do? They call, one NFL team will call another NFL team to ask them for a recommendation. Like, seriously, are you going to help out your competitor? Would ABC call CBS to ask them about an announcer? Of course they wouldn't. 
Why would they? We, you know, we're in the competitive businesses. We understand what we're looking for. We're going to develop that. That's the way the NFL is. Oh, you got to hire this guy. He's perfect for the job, you know, and so this guy's perfect. It's politicized. It's elected, not selected. And until the NFL gets their arms around it, you know, Rich McKay's out there talking. We have to do something about it. Rich, what's your plan? Like, seriously, what's the plan? Are we going to have a leadership center where we can send X players after they're done playing part of it's free. Okay, we're going to 50 players are going to go every year. We're going to teach them on what it takes to be a successful coach, what your day is going to be like, how it's got to happen, how you have to interact with players, what's part of the job. And now when you've graduated from this school, you're ready to go into the NFL. You're ready to go out and you may go through the school and say, you know what? Coaching's not for me. But the only way we're going to address the problem is to get a mass amount of people trained so that we have a lot of coaches in the league that are ready to become head coaches. And I can just tell you from experience, I've talked to too many coaches, you know, minority, uh, white, it doesn't really matter, that think they want to be head coaches and have given it zero thought or have had any way to where someone's taught them exactly what it needs to do to become a great head coach. They don't know. And, and as you said, we know what the problem is, but I think you're right. You got to get the root of the problem. You can't be tree topic with these headlines saying, hey, look, we're fixing it, right? You're putting a Band-Aid on a, on a lethal flesh wound. You've got to actually do it from the root of the problem. And like you said, teaching and, and doing it from the ground up. Everybody knows it's an issue, but these ideas that they have, I mean, this is absurdity. I mean, that, that, that idea, Mike, about literally, oh, I've got a black GM, so all of a sudden my draft position goes up five spots. Could you imagine the backlash? People would be pissed about that. I mean, and it just shows you how minimized, like I could trade up five spots in the third round for a sixth round pick. Is that all it's really worth? Like for me, it's a deeper issue. It's really about leadership. It's about trying to train people. What, what fans don't understand is the reason we have such a back end loaded system is simply this. If you're a position coach, I'll give you a couple examples. If you're a position coach for a team and you are a, you're hard charging and you're demanding on the players, Right. And you get a guy who talks to the media off the record and he rips the coach. You become unelectable. That guy's an asshole. And I'll give you the perfect example. When Kyle Shanahan was an assistant coach at the Washington Redskins working for his father, he got fired. There wasn't a positive word about Kyle Shanahan coming out of Redskin Park, mostly by the punter from Richmond, the former general manager and president. But for the most part, there wasn't, oh, he's too hard on the players. He's not friendly. The media bought right into it, too. All the Washington media, oh, he's not, a, you know, blah, blah, blah. He was unelectable. When we hired him in Cleveland, it was so obvious he was a much better candidate to be a head coach than Mike Pettin after the interviews that I just couldn't even imagine it. But yet he was getting killed. That's what happens in the league. If you don't play the political system right and you don't play it perfectly and get the players on your side, you're never going to get there. You're never going to get there. You need momentum. You need to carry the Southern primaries. I mean, Lyndon Johnson would have been tremendous at this. He would have been absolutely golden at this. But they don't understand, the league office doesn't understand how much, you know, Peter King's Monday morning quarterback, when he writes about a certain coach and he gets quotes, that's packaging. And when Bob Lamont, the agent for most of these coaches, the way he packages it, it's all PR. There's no essence of it. They want to win the press conference. They want to go in there and say, oh, we hired this guy, and, and Peter King's column said he was great, and Bob Lamont, who's got all these coaches, he says he's great. Seriously, I mean, how many coaches that Bob Lamont had that have gone on to be great? Andy Reid's certainly one of them. There's no doubt about it. 
There's no and Bob Lamont's a tremendous guy. And he's made a ton of money. But for every Andy Reid, there's a Marty Morningwig. There's a another coach who just hasn't done it. So like at some point, we have to develop a system that's going to teach leadership. And the players don't get it. They think because they played, they know how to coach. No, you don't know how to coach because you don't know how to lead. You don't know how to build a culture. And to win and sustain and keep your job, you got to learn that. You mentioned Lyndon Johnson, by the way. How great Brian Cranston won a Tony Award for his representation of LBJ in all the way. And then, of course, they adapted the HBO show. Think about Lyndon Johnson, which is fascinating, is this. You know, a lot of good things he did, Civil Rights Act, et cetera. But Vietnam, I mean, you talk about one thing that will just destroy your resume. I mean, Lyndon Johnson, fascinating figure in American politics, right? Unbelievable. I mean, truly, probably, you know, the Vietnam stain on his shoulders was really, you know, he allowed the generals and listened to the military. And I mean, there was that was an unwinnable war, unwinnable. And, you know, retreating looked bad, so they didn't want to do it. But that was an unwinnable war. I mean, you read about the bicycle brigade. I mean, AD, they talk about it. I mean, when we would bomb a bridge in Vietnam, we would blow out the bridge, right? And in strategic military operations, that was a good thing. And we could, you know, and now the bridge has collapsed and, the, and there goes their ability to get aid and, and necessities within the crossing the bridge. Within an hour, this bicycle brigade of 60 or 70 year old people on bicycles with a bicycle that looks like, a, you know, a cartoon character with shit on the back of the bike and they're pedaling over. And within an hour, they got a pontoon bridge built. You know, within three hours, they got goods and services crossing over the bridge. I mean, it just was remarkable. And then what we don't understand, and I wrote about this for the Daily Coach today, you don't understand the will of the people. If you don't understand the will of the people and you're in a fight, coaches, players, staff, whatever, if you don't understand the will and how important it is to them, you're never going to win. And that's what happened to Custer. Custer gets caught in that battle. And if you read anything about it, he's going in there. He's overconfident because he thinks he's so good. And yet he'd never understood the will of the people he were fighting. And so it's the same thing that happens. And Lyndon Johnson got caught up in that. And, and, and it ruined his presidency because when you walk into the Lyndon Johnson Library, it's a remarkable library to go visit. When you walk in, you see four floors of red boxes. The first floor is the museum of Lyndon Johnson. The second, third, fourth, and fifth floor, all you see are red boxes. The sixth floor is his library and Lady Bird's library. And of those four floors, you see nothing but red. And in those red boxes are his correspondence from his working days in Washington, from the time he was a junior senator to the time he was the president. It's four floors of these thick red boxes. It's unbelievable. It's breathtaking. And yet this guy is go down as because of the horrible mistakes of Vietnam and an unwinnable war, he can't. So oh, it's amazing. Like you said, that stain just eradicates a lot of the goodwill that he did. How about this crazy story involving DeAndre Baker, the Giants cornerback? Innocent until proven guilty, right? Well, criminal charges, four counts of armed robbery with a firearm and four counts of aggravated assault. Could be reduced or dismissed in Florida, but he still could face a fine or suspension from the NFL because there's a lower threshold to be found in violation of the personal conduct policy. Under the CBA, ratified in March, a mutually agreed-upon disciplinary officer will conduct evidentiary hearings and rule. No perfect president for predicting his outcome, but this is a 2019 first-round pick. The Giants invested heavily in him. 
And this story is that Baker told an unidentified masked man allegedly to shoot a fellow partygoer, no shots fired, and combined with two others, including Seahawks cornerback Quentin Dunbar, to steal $12,000 in cash and $61,000 in watches. It also states he previously lost $70,000 gambling. Four players recanted accusations against Dunbar before hiring lawyers. Baker's lawyer, Patrick Patel, says he is gathering video evidence to prove the criminal case is meritless. Bottom line is this. Okay, even if, as I mentioned, innocent beyond a reasonable doubt in the courtroom, but Mike, the NFL could still censure him because they're looking at things under a different situation as well, right? Yeah, no doubt. I mean, look, this is just, I mean, you know, what is really going on? I mean, at some point, you know, if you're Dave Gettleman, you're sitting in your office and you're reading this and and to a degree, some of this has to be, I mean, he was, somebody was there, right? He wasn't at home in bed and he was mistaken. This is not a case of mistaken identity. I mean, it's one thing to be proven innocent. It's another thing to really be innocent, right? There, there's sometimes there's just not enough facts to convict, but you could have been involved. And if you're Dave Gettleman, I think that's the line you're looking at. You're not looking at, is he guilty in terms of the court of the law is what was he doing? I mean, and they've got a lot invested in this guy and this guy hasn't been a very good player at all. He hasn't been a very good player at all. He's factually been a blown pick. I mean, when he's out there on the island, people go after him left and right. So, you know, I mean, this is just tumbling down the wrong way. And when I read the story, my first reaction was, Jesus, this is what Chrissy did when he went and go rob Rutgers. Remember when they went and go rob the the concert hall and he went in there and screwed it all up with Jackie Aprile? Yes. <laughs> Again, that's a situation where you got to trust the right guy, right? Yeah, I mean, like it's it's just to me, Dunbar is a kid who's been a was receiver at Florida, very athletic. They turn him a corner. He just can't stay healthy. I mean, Seattle, you know, he's perfect for what Seattle wants to do. He's kind of like a Richard Sherman type of player for Seattle. But again, you know, I mean, look, one thing we do know is we've seen it in the last week with the uptick in terms of off the field problems for a lot of players at Oliver DUI with a gun in a car, all that is the players need structure. They work better in a structure environment. Too much free time for anyone is not good. That's why retirement sucks. Like you have too much free time. You play golf for two weeks and all of a sudden you're like, what the hell am I doing? You know, Think about retiring now in the age of Corona. You can't travel, right? I mean, think about it. Like, how bored are you going to be, right? So they need structure. They need some place to go to work and improve their craft. And I think that's just an obvious. If I'm Dave Gettleman, I would be worried, A, about the player and about the character. And I don't think there's a really good ending for this. Yeah. Uh, Your point about having too much time, too. Idle hands of the devil's playground. Commissioner Roger Goodell, by the way, no longer judge, jury, and executioner, but he'll hear all appeals, but he maintains final say on suspension length. And just to further the story via the New York Post, Baker's 22 years of age. He had a Florida permit to legally carry a gun in public for more than a year, and a player can't be punished separately by the team and the league. But listen, he's got, he's got a lot to worry about here, as you point out. You've got to worry about, first off, winning the case in the court, and then you've got to win the case with the NFL, and then, of course, the court of public opinion, which oftentimes can be the most difficult case to win, right? No doubt. No doubt. That's the hardest one. And and, and he's got to win back his teammates, you know? He lost 70000 gambling. I mean, that's a little concerning. You know, like, where what was he gambling on? Was he playing poker? Because he wasn't betting on sports because there was no sports to bet on. And he wasn't going to any casino because there was no casino to go to. Like, what was he doing on gambling? That's a question I think you need to ask. Like, what was he actually gambling on? 
Yeah, more information, I'm sure, will come out as a story as it continues. We'll cover it here in the GM Shuffle. Speaking of gambling, last episode, we broke down the favorites of 2020 NFL MVP. How about the betting odds for Coach of the Year and who the top 10 coaches are in the NFL? That's coming up next. The NBA playoffs are heating up, and so is the action at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NBA. With same-game parlays, live betting, odds boosts, and so much more, don't miss out as the NBA postseason winds down. I mean, these second-round playoffs have been unreal, and we have the conference finals now on the horizon. Make sure you get all those futures bets in before the value disappears. And if you're new to DraftKings, you got to check this out. New customers bet 5 bucks to get 150 in bonus bets in. Instantly, download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now and use code SHUFFLE. That's code SHUFFLE for new customers to get 150 in bonus bets when you bet just 5 bucks. only on DraftKings. The crown is yours. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or in West Virginia, visit www.1800gambler.net. In New York, call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY-467-369. In Connecticut, help is available. For problem gambling, call 888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org. Please pay responsibly on behalf of Boot Hill Casino and Resort in Kansas. 21 plus age varies by jurisdiction. Void in Ontario. Bonus bets expire 168 hours after issuance, see dkng.com slash bball for eligibility and deposit restrictions, terms, and responsible gaming resources. All right, top 10 coaches in the league, NFL Coach of the Year favorites. Bill Belichick, even without Tom Brady, slight edge in the field per the bet GM odds makers, uh, plus 1,000 here in terms of winning. Not far behind, Tennessee's Mike Vrabel and new Dallas head coach Mike McCarthy at 14-1. Then you get a three-way tie. San Francisco's Kyle Shanahan, Indianapolis's Frank Reich, and Arizona's Cliff Kingsbury. Every coach that has won this award since 1991 has piloted his team to at least 10 wins. Jimmy Johnson was the only head coach to be named NFL Coach of the Year, the losing record. That was the Cowboys when they went 7-9 and nine during the 1990 season. So Belichick is, is always a smart pick, of course, Mike, but Vrabel... I think McCarthy makes sense because Dallas, uh, listen, the last couple of years, they've been underachievers. You feel like if you had a better coach, he could make that talent better. Shanahan, the Niners were a beast a year ago. Frank Reich is interesting. Kingsbury, I don't see them jumping up to 10 wins right away. And Sean McDermott, of course, the Buffalo Bills at plus 1,800. Buffalo feels like they're on the cusp of winning. Obviously, they made the acquisition to get digs, help out Josh Allen, good defense. But interesting picks here. Which one stands out to you? You know, I, I mean, I think Mike McCarthy's a really good bet here. I think that, you know, when you look at McCarthy at 1,400, I, I think the Cowboys' schedule is favorable towards them. I think that when you're evaluating coaching staffs, and I think when you're evaluating how do I want to bet with the staff, how do I want to put this together, like coaches, the coaching staff has more value than what home field advantage is. You know, we, have, we hear that goddamn stupid line, well, home field advantage is worth three points. Well, is it really worth three points in Cincinnati or is it worth three points in Seattle? Like every field's different, right? Like every field's different. Like you could go into, you know, Kansas City's hard place to go into, but maybe going into the Chargers facility isn't so hard. So why would you give three points on that? You have to variance. And it's the same thing with coaching staffs. You've got to variance the coaching staff on every single game. And it's just not the head coach. Like like Mike McCarthy in Dallas, right? So he's got, you know, McCarthy's, you know, won a lot of games in his career. 
He's got a good offensive staff. I mean, Kellen Moore's there with them. Kellen Moore, they moved the ball last year. They were effective. I'm not saying Kellen Moore's the greatest coach. I'm just saying they got a good line coach. They've got some good pieces there. They've got one of the best special teams coach in all of football in John Fossil. They've got one of the best defensive line coaches in all of football in Jim Tomasula. So when you add those together, the sum of the parts, to me, I think McCarthy's a really good play. I think Frank Wright's a really good play as well because, you know, Reich is really good. He's a really good offensive coach. Eberflus, the defensive coordinator, he's got to take a giant mother may I step up. You know, Bubba Ventrone, the special teams coach, they're going to be coached well in all three phases, and they didn't. I don't see Kingsbury. I'm with you, AD. I don't see Kingsbury winning 10 games. I think McDermott could. You really, when you're betting on McDermott, you're betting on Josh Allen. If you want to do that, God bless. You go ahead. I, I don't want to do it. You know, so I think San Francisco takes a step back and then it leads us to Belichick. And I think, look, Belichick, if he wins it without Brady, then certainly he's going to be in play because they will be good. They will not be a bad football team. Anybody who thinks that's crazy. Uh, maybe a little bit hurt by just having done it for so long. Andy Reid and Sean Payton are at plus 2,000 along with Mike Tomlin. So that's like at the outer edge of the top 10 along with John Harbaugh. You got Pete Carroll at plus 2,500. What may be actually funnier, Mike, is you go the other way and see the worst picks. Doug Marone, Billy O'Brien, Matt Patricia of Jacksonville, Houston, Detroit, respectively, at plus 5,000. And then Kevin Stefanski at Cleveland and Anthony Lynn of the Chargers at plus 4,000. Joe Judge also plus 4,000. Like, that would be, I don't want to say a miracle, but could you imagine Anthony Lynn or Kevin Stefanski or Doug Marone winning Coach of the Year? Come on. I mean, sir, how about Gruden at plus 3,000? I mean, Gruden's a $100 million man. He's one of the highest paid coaches on the list, and he's plus 3,000. I mean, and again, you know, he hires Rod Marinelli to be his D-line coach. That's a good coach. You know, is Paul Gunther. He's got Gunther to be his defensive coordinator. He's got Cable as line. I mean, he's got a lot of money on his staff. I mean, for him to be plus 3,000, I mean, that. I mean, Zach Taylor's ranked higher in this odds than John Gruden. Think about that. Let that sink in for a while. Let that sink in for a while. Zach Taylor has got less odds than Gruden. Think about that. John's won 11 games in two years in Oakland. 11, you know? And so, you know, if there's ever going to be a case for a guy to win coach of the year, it has to be winning coach of the year. You got to go from being shitty to being great, right? Well, if you won 11 games in two years and you come out and win 12 games the next year, you should be coach of the year. You've doubled your win total in one season. Yeah, the other one I was just going to mention quickly, you mentioned Zach Taylor, but also Dan Quinn with Atlanta, plus 2,500. I mean, there's, again, a team that was underachieving, should have been better. They were bad. He almost lost his job. So if they actually play to their potential, then he could be in the coach of the year conversation. Yeah, I mean, it's like, it's interesting how these numbers come in. And, you know, I would take a flyer on Frank Wright. I would def definitely bet Belichick here. I think that, I mean, I think, you know, Sean Payton, for him to get it, it you, you've got, this is a little bit like uh, the MVP voting. The, the team has to really do, I thought Mike Tomlin should have won it last year. You know, now he's a fairly good odd here because if they come back and win 12 games, he's liable to win it, even though maybe last year was his better coaching job, but he gets Big Ben back. So that makes a difference. I mean, poor Billy O'Brien. The guy's won 53. I mean, he's like 12 games over 500 as a head coach. He's got a better record than most of the coaches, and yet he's plus 5,000. I mean, you can't take a more uh, negative approach towards somebody. I mean, once it starts piling on, like, it just piles on and piles on and piles on. No one has any objectivity at all. The guy's won, like, four out of the six times he's been in the league. He's won the South. And now he's, he's treated like he's never won a game. 
Yeah, you're right. People just want more and expect more. And once that narrative gets spun, all of a sudden, okay, it's underachiever. He gets into the playoffs. They win division, but don't do anything beyond that. And all of a sudden, that can be a very tough handle. Uh, it's crazy when you look at these odds overall. But like you said, people don't realize how much good coaching exists right now in the league. One more I'll throw out you, a couple more actually, plus 2,500 right in the middle. Doug Peterson with Philadelphia and Matt LaFleur with Green Bay. Again, interesting names, high-profile coaches. Peterson's won a Super Bowl, but they're kind of middle of the pack because to your point, you know, it's like in the NBA as well. For years, I was like, well, Popovich should win coach there every year because he obviously is the best coach, but you often reward the team who is lousy then becomes good. And then all of a sudden, that coach, by the way, loses his job in the third year because the team goes back to being crappy. It's really, I mean, I think for Doug Peterson, look, he's got one of the best defense coordinators in football in Jim Schwartz, right? So he's got that covered. He's got to find a way. Now he's talking about changing the offense more into the Kyle Shanahan mode and running that style, more play action, more trying to get the ball down the field because last year he didn't have a receiver on the team that had over 500 yards in receptions. So he's got to try to do that. You know, special teams have always been fairly good in Philly. I think it's going to come down to the offensive line, but it's not just the name. I think as betters you always have to look at the staffs you know you always have to look at you know we got Adam Gase but then he's got Greg Williams and special teams and you know you've got to kind of parlay it all into and that staff against staffs that's how the best way to bet is to understand the true staff I mean like Pete Carroll's at plus 2500 right him and Zach Taylor are the same. One thing about Seattle, if they win 12 games and Russell Wilson's the MVP, I, Pete Carroll should be the coach of the year candidate. But I think there's always a mentality that you've got to take something that's really bad and turn it around. Like, you know, what team is going to be the team that flips it? You know, could it be Oakland? Could it be Denver? You know, what team has a schedule that can really allow itself to win games? Could it be Anthony Lynn? Say Anthony Lynn wins 12 games to win 11 games, you know? So I think that's how you have to look at it. No question. When we come back, uh, closing thoughts for the GM Shuffle. Open up the mailbag. Good question here about leadership, plus our uh, entertainment section of the show. A great show on Amazon Prime you're not watching, plus The Sopranos Dictionary and The Last Dance wraps up. As always, you can get a hold of us, thegmshuffle at gmail.com. Got this question from Gabe in Maine. Hello, guys. I've read all the education leadership books available, but they are a bit stale and similar. What would you recommend for books on leadership or culture construction? Well, Gridiron Genius, of course. I think every field could benefit from ideas outside of the norm. How about it, Mike? Leadership books that you love. Oh, uh, you know, I mean, there's so many of them that I love. I, I think, you know, the, the recent book, That Won't Work, by about how Netflix got started, Reed Hastings. I think that's a really good book. Ben Horowitz's new book is outstanding. You know, I think Malcolm Gladwell's Talking to Strangers. I think there's always something you can take and kind of apply it to what you're trying to work on. And, you know, I think all those books, Michael Lewis's books, you know, they're, they're not leadership books. They're story. They're narrative books that have leadership lessons within them when you read the story. And you can learn a lot from those. And I think you have to take little pieces of information. You know, it's not one book fits all. You've got to take a book and get one thing out of it or two things out of it and then move forward with it and then find another book. And you get these ideas. And, and, and the more you have a growth mindset is you'll improve your leadership ability. You know, the culture code. If you want to study culture, how does culture really evolve? How does incentivize not work? I mean, any of Dan Pink's books. So I think it's a lot about that. If you want to learn about the 
decision-making. Gary, any of Gary Klein's book on decision-making are fabulous books to go to. So there's really not one book you say, oh, wow, that's the book I've got to really study. You know, no, I think there's a lot of different ones, but I think some of those that I just gave out are helpful. And read The Daily Coach every day because I think The Daily Coach, we try to give a rec- book recommendation every single day to go along with the story. And I love your point about people think a leadership book, all of a sudden you got to you know, feature a guy in a tie with a rock-solid granite chin and the title that says something about you know, how to lead in the 21st century. Well, no, you those books sometimes, those how-to manuals don't work. Talking to strangers, you wouldn't think as a conventional leadership book, but it's about what? The human condition and about personalities and character traits and trying to determine the best way to succeed. So sometimes you have to look in more unlikely places to find the best books about leadership. No doubt. And, and just because it's not in the leadership section doesn't make it not a good leadership book. And you've got to take a pieces of it and move it out. You know, Michael Lewis's book, Liar's Poker and, and all that, they're good for you to be able to process what they're in and then apply it to your craft. That's the value of what you're reading is, is, to, is to spring an idea. You know, I, I read a lot of books about musical artists because of the creative process, which then springs an idea on how to become more creative, you know, and, and I've been sp- been reading a ton of books about how people make decisions because my next book is going to be about the non-obvious while some people can see it and some others can't and how we train our mind to that and so I, I've got to read about David Ogilvy who's an advertising executive because partly the problem with not seeing the non-obvious stems from the way we've been trained by advertising to see what they want us to see so it's all different section and then you come up with your own process same thing when you're trying to become a coach right that's the problem. We'll go right back to where we started this podcast is, is you've got to have an identity. You've got to have a seminar. You've got to have coaches sit in a meeting and say, if you want to become a head coach, here's the two or three things you've got to do to be a head coach. You've got to have a plan. You've got to have a vision. You've got to be able to put it on a piece of paper. You've got to sell it. You've got to walk into the interview. Like, I don't know what happened to Eric Bieniemy's interviews. Like, I don't understand it. I don't know what's going on in the interviews, but he just doesn't seem to be able to make the final. So he must not interview well he must not I'm, I'm not saying he does I'm just saying it's it you could assume this like I would like to know what his presentation is I would like to know how he's doing it you know because I'm sure there's a better way for him to sell his program you would think there's nobody hotter than Patrick Mahomes and the Chiefs high octane offense so the offensive corner of that team would be you know chomping at the bit to get a gig but uh, in the words of Chris Berman Eric sleeping with the enemy right now still waiting for that right head coaching job Last dance wrapped up on Sunday. My friend Justin just tweeted, I couldn't agree with him more. He said, Horace Grant calling MJ a liar and a snitch is more interesting than anything I saw in the actual last dance. In case you don't know the story, when they talked about the Jordan rules, which was a book by Sam Smith, an interesting book, in which they point out that Jordan was not a good teammate, yelling at guys, berating them. At one point, as they tell the story, Steve Kerr took a swing at the guy. And so Jordan says, we all knew that Horace Grant was tight with Sam Smith. It was him. So Horace Grant came out yesterday and just leveled Jordan. He said he's not only a liar but a snitch and his point against Jordan was you're calling me a snitch for saying I spoke off the record first of all I didn't secondly why are you telling stories about your first year in the league about guys doing blow and guys running girls in and out and that kind of stuff you're the snitch another guy who we haven't heard from is Scotty Pippen whose sources say 
was hurt by his portrayal in the documentary, did not care for the fact they included that section where he didn't go in the game, you know, the 1.8 seconds, the fact that Jordan called him selfish. You know, he, apparently he is stung by his portrayal. So, I mean, listen, as you and I said last time, Mike, it's a solid documentary. It certainly was enjoyable, but it was all filtered through the lens of Jordan. So it was not a warts and all documentary. I find Horace Grant coming out far more interesting in criticizing Jordan. Yeah, I mean, and, and look, I, I think there's a lot, like going back to the reader's question about what can you learn from leadership, I think there's so many things you can learn from that in terms of leadership. Like, I think one of the best scenes on the whole thing was when Jordan's sitting there on the plane and he's ripping some rookie because he smells like booze and he was out drinking the night before. Like, to me, that's exactly what you want from your best player, right? That's exactly what you want. That's exactly what you need to get that. So, you know, for me, I, I, I do think it was a little shallow in that in that degree, you know, and I think Jerry Reinsdorf comes off as being, you know, I think to me, you know, he's hiding behind too many things like step up, man. Like, you know, step. Why are you why are you standing in the background and you, you're looking at it through a different lens? Right. He came out of it to me. I thought, you know, he should have been more proactive not non-active. Yeah, the other part, when Jordan says that, you know, he feels like they could have gone for a seventh ring, and, like, he, he seemed genuinely excited when they said, okay, I want to see what Reinsdorf has to say about this, because we've never actually spoken why he didn't keep the team together. And, and Jordan's absolutely right when he says, well, just because Jerry Krause said that Phil wasn't coming back, of course, you could change that. And Reinsdorf had said, listen, I called Phil, said, do you want to come back? We'll do it. I will overstep Jerry Krause's opinion and have you come back. But this thought about Pippen might have come back, and Jordan says, because listen, Pippen would have been a different story. The rest of those guys all would have taken one-year deals. There's no way Pippen would have come back. Five years, $67 million deal he took after being the 102nd highest paid guy. He was getting paid, no doubt about it. They were not going to give him a one-year $20 million deal, and he was going to stay in Chicago. No doubt. And I think my point about Reinstorf is simply, you knew the culture that Krauss was creating. Why did you tolerate it? That is absolutely right. Uh, there's a great show on Amazon Prime, which you told me about. Tell us all about it, because I hadn't heard of it, and I hope it's as good as you're telling me it is. Well, I mean, I don't know. I, we just kind of was changing. I mean, it's called Zero, 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 and it's a fascinating tale about how drugs come from Mexico through the system. They go to New Orleans, so there's a story in Mexico, there's a story in New Orleans, and then there's a story in Calabria, Italy where the drugs end up to go on distribution. And in with each section, they talk the language of where they are. So obviously in Italy, everybody's talking Italian. They're in America, they're talking English. And in Mexico, they're talking Spanish. So we have subtitles. But it's not dubbed bad subtitles, like some of that stuff that's really bad, you know? So it's outstanding. The plot is unbelievable. And AD, they use this, they go back and forth on scenes you've seen before, and then they recreate them, and then you go forward. It's a fascinating, to me, way of, of doing it. I think it's really well written. I'm on, I think, episode five or six. It's, it's one of the best shows I've seen. It's powerful. It's scary, you know, because when you're dealing with the cartel, they don't care about women, children, or anybody. They're going to kill whoever they kill, and it's real. You know, from reading Don Winslow's books on the cartel and all that, you know that it's true. Uh, Winslow's books are novels based on a lot of reality. So for me, I, I think it's outstanding. It's one of the best things I've seen on television in a long time. Do you watch Do you watch Killing Eve? I know. You told me about it. I was telling my wife, we're going to watch it. Sandra O, oh, Jodie Comer, I hear it's a terrific show. Yeah, Jodie Comer's outstanding in it. I mean, I'm not, it, it's good. I think it, it, as most things, the arc doesn't continue on. You know, especially because there's always going to be the same arc. But, you know, I, I think it's good. And, and have you been watching? Are you caught up on Billions? 
No, I'm, we're watching Ozark right now, which I know we spoke on the phone last week. You told me you and Millie tried it, but it's just too depressing. i got to be honest with you. It feels like a poor man's Breaking Bad, so I don't think you're missing out on the three seasons of Ozark. With Billions, I watched the first three seasons, and then I got tired of it because it felt repetitive to me. They're now on season five. How is it looking? You know, I mean, I, I don't know where it's quite going yet, but it's still the same. You know, obviously, there's always that conflict between Giamatti and, and Axe Capital. And I, I just, I, watching Giamatti act is just a fascinating thing. I mean, the guy is really good. You know, to think that he was in, you know, what was that Wines thing he was in? What was that called? That movie? Oh, Sideways. Oh, that was so good. I mean, just to think of him in Sideways and the way he was, was so good. So, I mean, I enjoy that part of it. I really do. Yeah, he's a great, great actor. And obviously, credit to Brian Copeland, part of the Cadence 13 family and for what Billions provides. In closing, the Sopranos Dictionary, which our producer Joe sent our way. In case you're always wondering when you're watching the show, and I know people are binge-watching it now, people who haven't seen it are going back and revisiting the greatest show of all time. Gabagool, which is a northeastern U.S. term for Capicola, a poor cold cut. Uh, Quasimodo, literary protagonist of the hatchback of, of the of the hunchback, excuse me, Notre Dame, confused with Nostradamus by Bobby. I think people know Gumar, you know, they know about sit downs. But how about stupid a fucking game, which is a derogatory reference to the game of golf? <laughs> I love that. I love Furio. Mr. Williams here, he doesn't play golf. Stupid a fucking game. I mean, it's so good. I mean, it's remarkable how how well you know they bring them on the golf course. Who wouldn't need a little bit more length in their drive? And Toei Tony sells it. It's so good, Doctor Kennedy. I love it. <laughs> oh, is a good one too. Oh, a remark of exclamation. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> You can do it as an authentic oh. Italian-American. Oh, often conveying surprise, incredulity, or registered offense. Like, I'd, I'd love to be around the Lombardi dinner table and see how many times somebody drops. Oh, oh, rim shot. You know, I mean, so the best is always when you when you can cite one of those lines via text. You know, something happens and then you could cite it. You know, I got a text from Julius Sharp on Twitter. He's a good follow. He's one of the funniest people I've ever been around. And he sends me a text saying that the veto scene, but when Tony's talking to the psychiatrist, might be the best 10 minutes of television history. And I think he's right. I think he is right. If you just go back and watch that scene where Tony's asking her what to do, and then the scene that follows when Finn addresses them, and then in the best is Tony tells him to go, you know, buy a sandwich, any kind you like, and a soda too. Like he treats him like, like it's just so perfect. But I, and so he just texted me that out of the blue the other day, and I mean that's it's the truth. It's the best. It, I could watch that scene relentlessly. Oh, Polly's reaction just to the horror of a guy being gay is about as funny as it gets. How much more betrayal must I take? <laughs> Follow us on Instagram at the GM Shuffle, M Lombardi NFL, Adnan S. Burke. We'll talk to you next time.